and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I, like many people in the Northern Hemisphere, have been suffering in this crazy-as heatwave. It's just been so hot. London reached 37 degrees last week, that's 98.6 Fahrenheit for Americans. I mean, I think if the outside temperature is the same, if not higher than your internal body temperature, then surely it's a sign you should just stay home and do nothing. But that's not realistic for the means of earning a living. I've had rehearsals this week at a studio that's accessible only by going on the Central Line tube. For non-Londoners, the Central Line is the red line on the tube map. Red signifying the fact that it's the tube line closest to the depths of hell. So as a result, is very stuffy and hot. It's super awkward travelling to a 7pm rehearsal in rush hour with a cello on your back, just as everyone else is packing into the carriage like sardines, travelling to go home. You turn up to rehearsal gasping for breath, dripping in sweat and downing as much water as you can get your hands on. But what's also been challenging has been dealing with the constant change of temperatures. Two days later, I went up to Glasgow, where the temperature was half that of London. It was pissing down with rain, but about 93% humidity. On tours where you have to anticipate extreme changes of weather, you end up packing such a weird assortment of clothes. You know, those that help you endure the outdoors, such as rain jackets and boots, but then also your glam concert blacks with the air-conditioned concert venue. The struggle is real not only for humans and their clothing choices, but for instruments. Tuning becomes dodgy, strings unravel, you run the risk of getting split seams. Environmental factors play a lot in wrecking havoc on keeping your instrument in working order. I don't know about you, but I don't remember weather being this extreme when I was a kid. Is this all the accelerating effects of climate change? I mean, I'm only 32, so in a geological sense, I'm very, very young. But if I've noticed such sped-up effects in my lifetime, then that's a bit worrying. But perhaps that's a topic for another episode in the future. How do you deal with the heat in the meantime? I'd be interested to know how you cope. For me, it's lots of coconut water and avoiding people if I can help it. So I've basically just started off this episode chatting about the weather. How mundane. (laughs) My guest today is anything but. It's with Kate Simcoe. She's a DJ, film composer and founder of London Electronic Orchestra. Before you hear our chat, I have a small disclaimer. I recorded this conversation over a year ago in July 2018. I intended to release this interview on another podcast that you might remember me from called Musicians Weekend, but I never got round to releasing it. Now that As It Comes is here, I'm really pleased that I get to share it with you, finally. I found it really interesting to hear how Kate got into the world of DJing, she's played in some of the biggest clubs in the world, and how that path led her to film composition and ultimately to London, where she founded London Electronic Orchestra. Despite this chat being over a year old, I still think it's relevant to listen to today, and I listened back on it just to make sure there weren't any outdated references. The interview format is a little different from this podcast. For example, there's no wildcard question round. 
I will say also at the end she mentions her upcoming concert at the Barbican with Jamie Jones and that has indeed passed in November 2018. It was a raging success and they sold out the Barbican. Since then, she and Elio have gone on to play at the main stage of the Royal Albert Hall, supporting Carl Craig and Chinake Orchestra in April 2019. She's at the centre of this fusion that's going on right now of dance and electronic music with orchestral music, so I'm sure there are many exciting things coming up. Oh, I'll also say that a year ago my podcasting recording setup was pretty crappy then compared to now. In the past year, I've learned how to record interviews a bit better, so I apologise for the slightly hissy sound quality. This was also recorded in the residence bar in the apartment block she was living in at the time, so you might hear a bit of background noise. Points for every time you hear a seagull, a siren, a door beep, the rattling of ice and glasses, car horns. I mean, it's just the soundtrack of London, right? Anyhow, she has... A fascinating musical path, which I hope you find informative. Have a listen to Kate Simcoe. Thank you so much for having me on the 24th floor of your apartment block with this beautiful view. It's really lovely. No problem. So you started studying in Chicago, and how did your path lead you to where you are today as a DJ, founder of London Electronic Orchestra, and a film composer? Well, yeah, I started DJing in Chicago on the radio, so I had an interest in two things at that time. One was I was studying music technology, which was Mm -hmm. composing for electronics, essentially, so I... Uh, learned how to use Pro Tools and I learned about vintage synthesizers and I was taking composition and studying piano. So that was, you know, just pure piano, ear training, theory, very conservative music college. Classical. Very classical. Education. Yeah, classical education in just a very conservative program. It was at Northwestern in Chicago. And so I was, you know, so I was doing that as my studies and then on the side, I was at the radio station, and I was DJing for fun, and yeah, yeah. so that's how I got into um, the other side, like, I guess, you know, not non-classical, mm-hmm. and performing. You know, I yeah. didn't realize I was performing at the time, but that's how I got into it. So when you say DJing, do you mean you're presenting shows, but as, as well as that, creating your own music as well? Well, I was learning to create my own music. Okay. I wouldn't say that I would... <laughs> By any means, you know, want to play it for anyone yeah. <laughs> at that time was more, you know, just the beginning days of um, experimentation. Um, but yeah, so I was, you know, a radio DJ. So like you said, a presenter. I have uh, cassette tapes and CD recordings from back then. Um, but also from after presenting on the radio, I started getting requests to DJ at bars. Mm-hmm. And I would say, no, 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 I'm not a DJ. I just play music on the radio Hmm. and then people would say no no I mean we've heard you DJ we're happy you know and I remember my first gigs I was getting $80 and I was like you know that was all you needed to you know (laughs) win me over exactly like three drink tickets and $80 and I was yours for like four hours you know and um so yeah that's how I got into DJing and um when I graduated from Northwestern and you know I I had anticipated having 
my career go in a different direction. I, I guess I envisioned myself making music for film mm-hmm. and for television and that sort of thing for money. Um, however, it was the hobby side of music that ended up being my career, really, for the right. decade after. So you kind of fell into it by accident. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm noticing this sort of trend a lot with um, our previous guests and interviewees is that they never quite intend to do something, but they just kind of ride this wave and then all of a sudden they find themselves here. Yeah. So how did you find yourself um, in London for a start? Right. So yeah, that, you know, so what happened was in Chicago, I was riding the wave exactly like you said, just mm-hmm. sort of seeing what was happening naturally. I lived in Los Angeles for a year. I was interning and starting to make music for film. And I just realized then I did not want to make music for someone else. I just wanted to find my own musical voice and I wanted to do my own thing. So I left LA and came back to Chicago and just really focused on finding myself, I guess, as a producer, finding my own sound, getting better at production spending time DJing and, you know, just having a day job that, you know, I was cutting the hours less and less and less and less till I finally could support myself, Yeah, um, yeah. you know, with music. Yeah, make your side hustle for a while and then it becomes your main sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So just pulling that back slowly. Um, And so, yeah, I did that. And I was in Chicago and ended up touring the world, doing a live set of my own electronic music, releasing music on... A number of labels, um, including Ghostly, Spectral Sound, which was, at the time, I would say, one of the very top underground electronic labels in the States. So they're out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and right. they released Matthew Deere and a bunch of different people. But yeah, in, in like the mid-2000s um, to like late-2000s, um, that was like a real, real top label. So if you went to a festival or something in the States, you know, their stage, their after party was, you know, people wanted to be there. And so I was releasing with them, was touring around, doing my thing. And, um, and then I did, you know, I did a couple film scores and I realized on a film score I did in 2008 that I just, you know, I just realized my limitations as a composer. Mm, Okay. So I... They wanted me to compose in a sort of style of Philip Glass, or maybe I decided I wanted to. To be honest, I don't remember how that worked, you know, but either way, I was making sort of arpeggiated, you know, ideas on the flute or whatever, but I was just using a keyboard, and I didn't understand the range of the instruments. Sure, so you needed some background knowledge on orchestration and... A lot of knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I needed a lot of information to to really understand what was going on. And I realized that. And I was excited to learn. Mm. But it was one of those things where you sort of... I went from using something like a string pad to wanting to know what's the best way and, you know, refresh myself. Because I really always was a music theory geek. But I wanted to refresh myself (laughs) when writing my own music, you know, with orchestration and voice lading. Um to you and how would I write for strings best and how would that work if I wanted to add winds and brass Mm. at the same time so anyway I decided I needed to go back and get a master's because this was not something I was going to self-teach myself for the next film score there was just way too much going on (laughs) someone help me (laughs) yeah yeah basically and you know and in a really good way though I was excited to learn and you know I wanted to 
hear these instruments in person. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I realized that as much as I love music theory and I had excelled, I really did excel in, in um, interpreting music in terms of like looking at a piece of music and mm-hmm. being able to dissect which key it's in and what's happening. It's a lot different than you sitting down, you know, with a cup of coffee and a blank slate and doing it yourself. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, and also it's really easy to listen to a piece of music and be like, oh, I love the brass in that piece. Mm. And sitting down and writing a piece of music where the brass sound good in that piece, right? (laughs) So, so, yeah, so long, you know, long-winded answer, but, you know, to kind of shed light on how... I moved to London and why I moved to London, it was genuinely because I wanted to spend time with the orchestra in yeah. person and not rush it and spend a couple of years alongside these instruments, working with players and finding my musical voice with the orchestra as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that led you to study at Royal College of Music and do your film composition masters. Yeah, exactly. And happily ever after. Mm. <laughs> well, here yeah. we are, I guess. And here we are, Davina, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so to sum it up, well, you met several of the LEO players at college. Yes. Worked with them in the formation of London Electronic Orchestra. So having formed LEO, did you feel like there was a demand to combine genres, your electronic genre, with your classical composition? And... What did you find from your DJ playing that really informed your classical performance and uh, composition and vice versa? Well, I would say, first of all, it was really just riding the wave, if you will, at the Royal College of Music that led me to form what was later called London Electronic Orchestra. Because Mm -hmm. when I moved to London, although London at the time, so this was 2012, Mm -hmm. in 2012 I would say London was arguably neck and neck with Berlin as like the top city for electronic music in, in the kind of music I do house and techno you know as a DJ so it was definitely there was a part of me that was like oh man like you know I, I need to you know keep my head down during my first year I said no to some really key clubs oh, that right. never asked again there's the sort of places that ask once but you know yeah. my point is I moved here to study classical music sure. and and I was dedicated to that and yeah. I was not and I knew that I had so much to learn in two years and I was committed to that yeah right and so yeah no hard feelings it is what it is so anyway at the Royal College of Music I had no intention of being allowed quote-unquote I wasn't sure what they would even think of electronics and if mm-hmm. that's something that you know especially dance I mean you know beats and stuff I would think that you know of course I want sound design it's film music but in terms of taking my DJ background and putting it next to (laughs) electronic or like next to orchestra I did not expect them to get behind that and that was I was okay with that Mm. I was like these could be two separate worlds I'll focus on just the orchestra and if they get combined later so be it yeah you know but I didn't even know how I would do that if that would sound cheesy or good or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my my composition professor was the one who encouraged me. As I was, like I said, trying to find my voice as, an, as a composer, he was like, listen, you know, a lot of composers who study with me, you know, come in here and they haven't found a voice at all as a composer. He's like, you're already a composer. Mm. You already have a musical voice. So why would you start from zero? Yeah. Take your sound... And just add the palette of the orchestra 
combine that with your sound. That's how music evolves, I suppose, isn't it? It's not just from studying, <laughs> studying from fresh slate all the time. Like, yeah, yes. exactly. So he's like, you know, find your signature. Don't don't throw away what you've already built. Essentially, like when you're trying to create, you know, an identity as a film composer. Yeah. You know, don't don't discount what you we have already. Because of my composition professor suggesting that that I ended up you know, working with new tracks that would have beats and, you know, I'd go in and I started working with Valeria Karpatova, our harpist, and getting her to record some rhythmic harp parts over more dance beats and putting strings over, you know, so I would, I would have remixes, you know, that were helping, you know, get a little income in while I was a student and stuff like that. And I'd just be in the recording studio, which was 20 pounds an hour as much as I could. Mm. They knew that I was like, I would always sign up for as much as I possibly could. Yeah. And they knew that if there was ever a cancellation, like, just call me. <laughs> like, I it's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Like, it's never too late to call me. Yeah, like, yeah, I'll yeah. take that hour for 20 pounds anytime mm. because it's just unbelievable, you know, and now that I'm out in the real world, I mean, wow. You don't have that anymore. And just to have that contact time is so valuable, isn't it? Yeah. Just with players on tap exactly. and a space to access really really easily totally and you know exactly just players where you can just say okay you know for the album for example you know just bring down a vibraphone you know what I mean <laughs> just bring down a vibraphone oh, try hiring yeah. a vibraphone now there's so yeah. many fees involved right like exactly and hireage and all these other yeah things. exactly so it was all great you know yeah all very easy. There was no porterage. There was no problem. You know? <laughs> Breezy times at the RCM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I just you know. Anyway, it's just like you said. It was just what happened naturally. Yeah. It was um you know what what other you know musicians are telling you. It's the same with me. And I think in music, you know, I, the advice I had when I was around twenty with my jazz piano teacher was, you know, have a lot of different things going on in music at the same time was his advice. Don't just have one tiny little niche, mm, yeah. you know, be involved in different things. So just for, as for example, you have a lot of different projects, you sure, know, yeah. you know, yeah. um, outside this podcast, you have many things going on, <laughs> you know, a lot, of, you know, play with orchestras, you play with, you know, different ensembles, you're a soloist, you do a lot of different things. And so I've, you know, always approached music like that as well. And, um, yeah, because so, then when one thing is going great and there's a lot of momentum, you know, you can ride that wave. Um, and also, you're you're not pigeonholed. Exactly. You're not boxed in because you never know what's coming around the corner. I, I, I had a really interesting conversation with my sister once and she's always had quite steady office job type thing. But then there was one time when she said, you know, Davina, I'm actually a little bit envious of your freelance lifestyle. And I was like, what? Freelancers always envy the steady income types. And she said, well, because if you, let's say you lost one form of income, you've got so many contacts, so many strands of income coming in from other places that you'd probably be fine. If I lost my job, I lose everything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I never really thought of it that way. Yeah. So I think we are really lucky to yeah. be able to have that variety that yeah. You know, music does create. Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. And I think it takes pressure off as well because if you have that variety, then also you're not pushing yourself. Mm. If you only do one thing and you're just like, you know, whatever it is, if you're known for one sort of thing and, you know, that's all you do and you've done one album of that one thing mm -hmm. and then you have a lot of pressure to have the next one be just Follow as up. good or better, you yeah. know, and it's like, if so, yeah, if you're, 
so anyway, that's how it ended up happening. I, you know, I met these players at Royal College of Music. I was in the, you know, the recording studio quite a bit, and then at the end of the year, they have a week that is called Great Exhibitionists, where they rent out the student theater, the opera theater, which mm-hmm. is beautiful, called the Britain Theater. And one student a year, at least when I was there, gets mm-hmm. the, the theater. You have to make a proposal. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting that theater. Because, like, that was my second year. Because the first year, I went to the other students who had their show at the theater. Mm. And I was like, this is amazing, you know. And I was like, I, you know. And I, I didn't know at the time. I'm like, this is, like, going to be my last hurrah. You know, it's going to be the end of my second year studying in London. My tier four student visa was going to be expiring. Mm. And I was like, you know, this will be my chance to, like, put together my sort of vision and what I've done and, you know, working really hard for two years and, you know, that'll be my chance. And, you know, 20 pounds an hour is great at the recording studio, but talk about having a free orchestra and, you know, all the, you know, the mics and the sound techs and it was recorded on video and it was just amazing. You know, like the entire staff of the theater, I mean, the whole thing was just there. And so that was my platform. And again, it was just, I just wanted to do it to do it. You know, yeah. for well, why not? Why not? We're going to get this opportunity again. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. so much harder, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I sort of invited everyone I knew from the electronic side. It completely sold out. It oh, sold out. Excellent. They said it was the earliest sellout they've ever had of a student show in there. Oh. It's only like a three hundred capacity, but you know, everyone from the electronic side, you know, wanted to go to a free concert yeah. with orchestra. Let's check this out. Let's check it out. Exactly. So that was March twenty fourteen. And leading up to the show, I was just like, what am I going to call it? And I was speaking with a friend and working with a friend about starting a label, which I now have started, called London Electronic Recordings. Mm-hmm. So I just ended up calling it London Electronic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And the name stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. L-E-O. L-E-O. And so, yeah, the last thing to say is that at that show, there was a manager from a management company. And about a week after the show, I was contacted... And they took me on board, and that's how LEO was taken from the student world into the real world. Yeah. And on the back of LEO, I applied for an exceptional talent visa. And that's how you're still with us today. <laughs> that's how I am here with you in London today. Do you think you'd be able to do what you do here in London with LEO um, and your film composition anywhere else? I'm from Chicago. I could not do this in Chicago. No, the scene's not quite there no right that was one of the reasons i left um chicago has an amazing orchestra the chicago symphony is phenomenal i grew up with daniel barenboim as the main conductor Mm -hmm. and pierre boulet i mean they're phenomenal yeah um also though when i would be at the concerts you know it's just such a conservative program which is (laughs) fine i mean i was there with my grandmother i didn't care yeah but i'm just saying it's not like going to south bank center and seeing middle-aged and younger people there you know seeing something really groundbreaking yeah something that pushes the barriers yeah very rarely you know and and not with the symphony itself more with you know maybe they'll have a night once in a while but very very rarely and so anyway you know maybe in new york you know new york has a good scene and that Mm. could have been possible but I do think that London, not I think, I know that Europe and the UK is farther along in its acceptance of electronic music. Mm -hmm. The the US is getting there. So so basically, in the UK, 
and Europe, like when I would be in Berlin when I was on tour, I'd be mind blown that I'd hear house music, for example, at, at a boutique, you know, in the city. Whereas in Chicago, it'd always be rock and roll, right? Yeah. And, you know, un- and electronic music, house and techno is underground, genuinely. Like, you really didn't hear it on the radio and this and that. Mm. Whereas in London, you know, BBC Radio 1 every night is like, it's oh, really, yeah. it's, it's a really mainstream, sure, yeah. bigger thing. So, you know, it's, when I was interviewing to study at NYU, which has a film scoring program, they said that my portfolio would have to consist of all new orchestral-only material, and that anything I'd done up to that point, including film scores or anything, um, that was you know even a mixture of electronic and classical, just didn't count. Anyhow, New York just wasn't the place for me to learn what I wanted to learn about orchestra. So I don't think that combining the orchestral side with electronics really could have happened many places. I mean, maybe in Berlin. I don't know what they have going on there exactly. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think London was the best suited place. London, you know, has so many ensembles. And there's an audience for all this stuff. Exactly. I'm very surprised at some of the concerts that I do. I'm not going to say exactly what, but Mm -hmm. I, I just see people in the audience and it's sold out. And I think, oh... You came to this concert. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it's good motivation as a performer to do your best. Yeah. Because you think, someone's paid money to come see this. Yeah. You know, you, you've got that pressure, I suppose. Mm. So what attracts you um, to writing for film? I was actually listening to your playlist that you created on Spotify. Inspiration for the film that you wrote the soundtrack for, called 20 Weeks. I can definitely tell there's, like, minimalist influences in there lots of Max Richter and Steve Reich um, Philip Glass yeah very very enjoyable yeah so that film score was for a director in Los Angeles and I worked on it remotely and um, you know just like a side note personal comment that was crazy so I I took on the score in 2016 and you know films just take a long time to get to the final cut and this that and the other so, you know, in 2016, I took it on, and then Final Cut, I think, was over to me just before Christmas or something like that. And then I ended up getting pregnant in January of yes. last year. So I was scoring 20 weeks, which is about a woman who has complications under 20-week scan. Ah! Uh. <laughs> Honestly, like, right between, like, in the first trimester when it was too early to tell anyone oh, I was no. pregnant. <laughs> and just, like, you know, scoring music to these scenes... Um, but you know, it was, I'm just saying it was just, it really synchronized with my, uh, my life scoring that film. So you enjoyed the process. I love scoring for, for film. And when I did my undergrad, when I mentioned I, I studied music technology, um, they did not offer anything specifically in scoring for film. And I really wanted to, to learn pro tools and, so for my final independent study in my final year, um, I did a project where um, I mainly like self-taught Pro Tools and score film, mm. you know, short film from the film school at Northwestern, and submitted that. Um, so that was just something I've always been interested in. I was always interested in how music and picture align, sort of like a modern opera really if you will it's like music yeah. and acting and everything all together isn't it learning about light motifs and, <laughs> and oh there's a fancy word what i love about film scoring 
that is at the process is almost the opposite of starting from zero. So when I'm making a club track, mm. I'll think about when I'm at the club, what I like to hear, what makes me want to dance, you know, what has a good energy, you know, different elements, for example, and then I'll start from zero. But when, I, you know, there's a film, it's a lot about the character, if it's a narrative, yeah. or if it's a documentary about, you know, what, what the underlying message is. And, you know, sometimes your job as a film composer is to bring something in to the scene that may not have actually been there. Yeah. If that makes sense. To suggest something Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily on screen. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So I really, really like that about it. And, um, and it takes me a little bit of time usually to get inside a film, but I enjoy that process, Mm -hmm. you know, just really to consider what the palette's going to be musically, um, in terms of the instrumentation, um, and what's the sort of sonic world. But then also to get inside the characters and, you know, see what's quirky about it. And, you know, what are a couple things you can sort of bring out. And, yeah, Yeah. I really like it. Just have that. I mean, I suppose you have your parameters, don't you? And then just being being able to be so creative within that. Yeah. So we've got a couple questions that we ask every guest on our podcast. Okay. Um, so each episode, we have a segment about weird gigs. Okay. And I was wondering if you have a weird gig that you would like to share with us. I mean, I've had a lot of weird gigs with Davina. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've definitely had some weird costumes in Elio. <laughs> yeah, we've had, we've had some funny costumes with Elio. I mean, some of the weirdest gigs for me are always where I'm booked and people don't know I'm performing. Oh, no. Why is that? And it happens mainly in countries, I mean, to be honest, a lot happens in the, in the United States, like smaller cities, where they don't have the right sort of venues, you know, back, you know, back when I was playing electronic music. Mm. So I remember one time in Seattle, I was playing, and they had my live set, so I wasn't DJing at all, and I was, like, behind the bar, because that's where they had space for me. With my laptop, yeah. and um, I had people coming up to me and asking for drinks. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, I'm saying that, like, from a very humble place, but, I mean, th- that's weird in, like, a frustrating way, but it's, it's like, it's weird culturally as well, you know? It's just mm. weird how people don't tune into it. Like, I never was angry with anyone. It's yeah. just weird, you know somebody's gone to a bar in a city where again I said electronic music was not mainstream Mm. and there's you know my music you know especially back then didn't have lots of vocals or anything so it's definitely like an odd sort of techno it's really loud you know what I mean and um, people are dancing sort of in front of me Mm -hmm. and somebody makes their way to the front dancing people yeah and, and oh by the way can I have a yeah <laughs> and things that maybe on my computer I don't know I'm like logging in I guess like drink yeah, orders yeah. you oh know what gosh, I mean yeah and but then so, they'll just be shipped in on like some yeah and like um so yeah I mean it's just yeah, a weird okay. it ju- it's weird in the sense that people are um oblivious yeah just really oblivious it's like you know yeah it, they're that- also drunk probably All right, Kate. So, for our final question, so we ask all our uh, guests this question. If you weren't a musician, what would you be? You know what? I would be a human rights lawyer. 
Wow. <laughs> Good old stuff. Which is different. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, a lot different path. Um, but yeah, my dad is an attorney and I just grew up realizing how much you can help the world by understanding the laws. And yeah. so, yeah, if, if I was not in music, which I hope is my own personal way to, to reach people and inspire people and to make them happy mm. um, and bring joy, you know, I hope, to some people's lives, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but, yeah, I mean, that would definitely be the, the thing I would, would want to do. Um, yeah, human rights lawyer. You're a hard worker, as the RCM is seeing, <laughs> so I'm sure I'm sure you'd be very good at that. Oh, um, thank you so much for doing that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's coming up for yourself and for LEO and your film composition? So yeah, upcoming, the big project that I'm working on is in November on the 27th. I'm doing a show with uh, house producer and DJ Jamie Jones mm-hmm. at the Barbican Centre. So yeah, it'll be a, a larger, our largest actually, London Electronic Orchestra ensemble since the Britain Theatre concert I mentioned yeah. in 2014. Yes. So I'm really excited for this and I'm writing new music for full orchestra at the moment and I'm working on a new feature length film score, a documentary um, also from the US called We Believe in Dinosaurs. It's called that but it's about the Creationist Museum in Kentucky. Okay. And, right. and then I'm making new music of my own you know just producing some new dance tracks and DJing and yeah that's what I'm doing as you mentioned before you got to do a little bit of everything don't you yeah I enjoy it like that as well thanks so much thank you let you relieve the babysitter now (laughs) that was the multi-talented Kate Simcoe Since that chat a year ago, she has just returned to the UK from a DJ tour of the United States in July 2019 and is back in the studio making new music for London Electronic Orchestra. And as mentioned at the very end of the chat, she'll be releasing the soundtrack album to the feature documentary We Believe in Dinosaurs This Autumn. (laughs) She didn't say autumn. She said fall because she's American. (laughs) Sorry, Kate, it took so long to release this conversation. And I really appreciate you hiring a babysitter for an hour to chat to me. Her child has since doubled in age. I'll put the links to the playlist and films mentioned in the conversation in the show notes so you can check out Kate's work from there. This week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from oboist Amy Turner. Music College didn't prepare me for the time I was asked to dap on a show commemorating the group The Carpenters. So for non-musos, I'm just saying this because I have been asked before, <laughs> dap is short for deputising or deputy, so if you're covering or substituting a regular player. I had the pad of music, which was fine, but I did notice that there were some lyrics penciled in as well. I then noticed there was a microphone in front of my stand. When I inquired, I was told... Oh yeah, just feel free to join in on the backing vocals. So Music College certainly didn't prepare me for having to mouth words to various songs by the Carpenters, my jaw moving up and down like a ventriloquist's puppet, oboe in my hand. (laughs) Thank you, Amy, for your contribution. I've definitely been in a similar boat. Every time I'm in a situation where I have to sing the national anthem in a country, 
I'm not from. <laughs> it only happened to me once in Australia. I don't even remember where I was, but we all stood up and then everyone launched into the national anthem. And I know the melody because the tune is actually brilliant. I think it's really catchy. But I didn't know any of the words. So I just stood there kind of like moving my mouth going blah, 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 blah. I don't know any of the words to this. That's the only thing I know is that the Australian National Anthem features the word gert. It's not really a word that anyone uses. I think it's an adjective. It means surrounded surrounded by sea, which makes sense. I will admit, I still don't know the words to the UK national anthem, and that's meant to be an easy one. So I should learn sometime, one day. If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for, then let me know. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com, or just find me and tell me I'm around. One more thing before I wrap up. I have a bit of a personal plug to mention. I've recently become a speech contributor for BBC Radio 3, the classical music and culture radio station here in the UK. I've been writing and recording some short voice segments about musical locations in Britain for the Time Travellers series. It's on during the weekday morning show Essential Classics, and they broadcast a segment every day from a different contributor at 10 past 10. That was not a good time to say in a Kiwi accent. I really wanted to say 10 past 10 or, or 10, 10. That's a cartoon character. 10 past 10 on a weekday. Now you won't forget what time it is. So listen out for my stories. By the time this episode goes out, I would have had a couple come out, but you can find them online or find it on the BBC Sounds app. I've written a story about... New Zealand composer Douglas Lilburn, who sent loads of pots of honey to his teacher, Vaughan Williams, as you do. Also a story about the composer Rebecca Clark, who wrote a very famous viola sonata. So I'll try and put a link to those in the show notes, and there'll be more coming out in the future. So I better get writing and researching. Anyway, plug over. Thanks for indulging me. I'm just going to say I'm very excited. And it's pretty cool to be doing something a bit different from playing the cello. I'm a time traveller for the BBC. I'm I'm Doctor Who, basically, is what I'm saying. No, no, just kidding. I wish. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Massive belated thanks to Kate Simcoe for sitting down to chat with me 13 months ago. And finally, thank you for listening. It's always great to hear what you think of the pod, so get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Chat to you all soon. Bye. Remember to rate and review the apples at the, right in view, the, this pink lady is exceptional. It's very crisp and crunchy. Five stars. <laughs> Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.